at the very end of chapter 3. Which will be our text this morning. We've been in John chapter 3 pretty much this whole time. I want us to open up in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we approach this time of worship through the Word, I pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit, that You would cause a, a, a fresh renewal in our hearts, that we would be able to grow in the knowledge of You. Lord, as we think about the illuminating ministry of the Spirit, that our minds would be illuminated as we read in this passage who Christ is. Father, as I approach this passage, I myself am humbled as I stare into the beauty of who Christ is, the wondrous work of God in the soul of man, the redemption that comes from it. Father, as I come to this task, I know I am weak and needy. I need your unction. I need your power. Lord, hide me behind this. Father, as our church congregation comes, wake us from our slumber. Help us to be awakened in understanding, in knowledge of you. Lord, put in us a fire and a burning to know you more, to, 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 to seek you more clearly, to love you more dearly that we may walk in your ways, that we may be obedient to your word. Lord, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ, through the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have you ever heard that saying that that ignorance is bliss? You ever heard that? Or what you don't know won't hurt you or hurt them. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Ignorance is damnation. You can be damned for what you don't know. That is what this passage in Scripture is telling us this morning. That is what John the Baptist is trying to make so clear. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter that your father is Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It doesn't matter what your lineage is. But you can be damned for not knowing Christ high and lifted up. That is the emphasis in this passage. Now you may think that you have it all together, that you have a good life, and that you've done some of the right things, most of the right things. You're mostly good, halfway good, partly good. But what Scripture teaches us is that we are 100% depraved, 100% wicked. So how do we know God? Because that's what people want to do, right? People want to know God. We go to the farthest reaches of the world. I grew up in West Africa. And in Africa, people want to know God. In fact, they, uh, they do all these rituals to know God. Not only that, but the Catholic Church has, has entered in and given them more rituals that they can follow in order to know God. Some churches in America will teach morality. If, you're just, if you don't drink, you don't smoke, and you don't run with those who do, You'll be good. It's all about lifestyle. It's all about moralism. But it's all about knowledge in the book of John. In the book of John, he is pointing to the knowledge of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. And so to know God, to truly know Him, we have to know Christ. And this passage this morning gives us three facts about Christ. Three things that we must know 
about Christ. And this is more than just a knowledge, a, a I understand, because some of us don't understand things very well. We're going to talk about the Trinity this morning, and many of us are still confounded by the Trinity. It is still confusing to us, and that's okay. But I want to ask you something. You say that you know something to be true. We know that airplane travel is safe. We know this. Intellectually, we've read the diagrams. We've probably watched some YouTube videos that tell us how safe air travel is compared to even train travel. And we say, okay, I believe that air travel is safe. But until you get on that plane and you put your life in the pilot's hands and trust in the two engines and the wings of that plane, do you truly know that it's safe? It's the same thing. I could say, man, I really trust that that chair will hold me up. But until I sit down and experientially know, that's, that's the only way we can know is through experience. So to be able to know who God is, we have to be born again. That's what the very first part of John chapter 3 told us. You must be born again, born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God must enter in and make you have new life, transform you. And that's how you begin to know. But our passage this morning starts in verse 31. Verse 31 of John chapter 3 builds on the rest of chapter 3. And it enters in even to John chapter 4, which is I'm excited to get to next week. It says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he sent the Spirit, or gives the Spirit, without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. I want to reread verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son or disobeys the Son, your translation may say, will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. John, the author of this, remember there's two Johns that we are dealing with. We have John the Baptist and we have John the author. And I get them confused a lot, but when we read, recognize John the author is writing John the Baptist is speaking. And so in this, we, we want to look and see where does John the Baptist stop speaking and where does John the author start speaking. And if you look, you may see some quotation marks at the end of verse 30. Just, just do a poll here. How many people in their Bibles have quotation marks at the end of verse 30? Just raise your hand so I can get a poll. How many of you don't have quotation marks at the end of verse 30? Okay, so what is happening here is in the Greek, there is no quotation marks, no periods, no commas in the original manuscripts. And so all the words are squished together. There's not even spaces between words. And what has happened is somebody has decided to make a, uh, an interpretative decision. Is John the Baptist speaking or John the author doing like a, a commentary on what is going on? Honestly, it really doesn't make much of a difference. 
If you read this, does it matter if John the Baptist is speaking or John the author is speaking? John the author is recording what John the Baptist is speaking anyway. So both of which are inspired by God. Okay. What we see is John wants to show us that Jesus Christ is lifted up. Uh, if you remember early on when he talked about being born again, how did he describe being born again? Well, he went back and told us an Old Testament story about some snakes that bit a bunch of the Israelites because they were in rebellion against God. And the only way for them to save themselves was to look at the brazen or the bronze serpent. The bronze serpent would then, they look at it and they would be saved. And so John the Baptist is building on this concept or John the author is filling out the information for us, that Jesus Christ is lifted up in his crucifixion. So Jesus comes from God. John the Baptist wants everyone to know, and John the author wants everyone to know, that Jesus comes from God, that Jesus is God, and Jesus rules as God. Those three facts that we must know. So my goal this morning, in line with John, the author, is for you to see Jesus Christ lifted up. I want you to do more than see it with your intellectual eyes. I want you to see it with your heart. I want you to see it with your spirit. I want you to see who Jesus is in this passage. This passage is humbling. This passage is enlightening. This passage brings me so much great joy. And I want you to have that as well. So we need to start in verse 31. It says, The one who comes from above, is above all. Now that just sounds like a riddle to me. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Do you remember what Nicodemus's problem was? He wasn't getting it, was he? And why was he not getting it? Because he was not born again. And he was thinking in earthly terms. Over and over again, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you must be born again by water and by spirit, right? You need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And what does Nicodemus say? Well, how does that work? You can't get back inside of our mom's womb and come back out again. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus said, you don't understand this because you're not looking at it from the right perspective. And so John the Baptist here is saying that Jesus, his origin, where does he come from, is above. This is important. Every other prophet in the Old Testament, where do they come from? Their mother, right? They come, they're born. All the prophets were born of a mom and a dad. They all came from earthly ways. Jesus is not just a good man or just a prophet. He comes from above. This is important. We need Jesus Christ to fill this prophetic office. Now, there's three offices that Jesus fulfills, three roles. He fulfills the, prophet, uh, the role of prophet, priest, and king. There's a pretty standard understanding of who Jesus is, prophet, priest, and king. And we really see his prophetic office on full display here. And he is teaching us, he's giving us the knowledge of God. Of God. Flip over really quick with me to John chapter 1, verse 18. Now, you want to keep your finger here because this is where we like to stay. But John chapter 1, verse 18. And listen to what Jesus, well, John says about Jesus. No one, 
Get that? Not a single person, no one, has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. No one ever has known God. The one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is at the Father's right side, He has revealed Him. Jesus reveals God. As the Old Testament prophets would come and they would tell the people of Israel, you need to repent because you did the wrong thing. As Isaiah, who has seen the Lord high and lifted up, what did he say? Woe is me. And then he went and he told the Israelites, woe is you. Not only woe is me, but woe is you because you are rebelling against God. You don't know God. And so the whole emphasis here is to know God. Jesus Christ is how we know God. So how do we know Him? Well, let's follow the argument. John is making uh, this argument that shows us that Jesus comes from God. He is sent from the Father. Sent by God like no one else has been sent. No other prophet was sent by God in the way that Jesus Christ was. Only Jesus provides the knowledge of God that we need. There's no other way. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, we want to do this on our own, don't we? Because we as human beings are self-sufficient. And not only that, we're Americans, you know. And Americans, we're pretty tough. You know, we fought this independence thing, you know, so we can do our own thing. We don't want to pay taxes on tea. Now we pay taxes on everything, but that's another story. And we, we determine that we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap. Have you ever been told you could be president if you wanted to? You could be anything you want to be when you grow up. You could just be anything. The reality is, we think that when it comes to Scripture. We could be anything we want. If I want to meet God, then I'm going to work so hard that I'll make it happen. The reality is, it's a gift. And it comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes from above. Only Jesus provides the knowledge of God that we need. Verse 31 when we use this language from above, where else have we noticed this language? This is why it's so important to take all of John chapter 3 together as one full discourse, as one full discussion. What does it mean to be born again? To be born from above. We talked about this language of again and above, didn't we? And we said it's really the same thing, it's the same word in Greek. And so we just, in our English, in order to try to understand it, we must be born from above. Well, where does Jesus come from? Above. Jesus comes from above. He is sent by God. Go ahead and look at verse 34. So normally we go verse by verse. Now I'm going to actually lump some verses together for us to better understand the argument. So we're going to skip 32 and 33 and jump over to 34. It says, For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ speaks God's words. He is the one who does what God has commanded. In fact, we see this two, two-pronged approach, these two pathways elevated in our passage. When you uh, read the entire Bible, there should be two things, that you, or one main thing that you should notice. There are two pathways. The path of the fool and the path of the wise. The path of the unrighteous and the path of the righteous. The path of the Son of God and the path of the not-so-son of God, right? There are two directions that you can go, heaven or hell. We see this, Christ or Adam. The reality is we are all born into Adam. Every single one of us are from the line of Adam. 
Uh, T.S. Lewis has wrote a whole book about the, the sons and daughters of Eve, right? And we have this whole idea that we are all from Adam. Yet we have something new happening here. And 1 Corinthians really breaks it out for us. So don't go there. Hold your, hold your Bible here where it is. But I'm going to read it. I want you to listen. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. All right, who do you think we're talking about here? Adam. Okay, we got this. We're moving. The second man is from heaven. Where does he come from? From above. The second man. Who is that? Jesus. Not the second man after Adam, because there wasn't a second man after Adam that comes from above. Christ comes from above. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus has to be different from Adam in being born of natural flesh, but also of the Spirit. So Jesus comes from above in order that we would then become partakers of His um, family, that we would be adopted into the family of God, that we would be part of that. So Jesus Christ has to come. So here's the question. Do I belong to Adam or do I belong to Christ? If I belong to Adam, guess what? It's a natural thing. I, I was born into it. I didn't have any choice in the matter. I am already here in Adam. But to be born of Christ means I must be born again. I must be born by the Spirit. The Spirit must regenerate me into a new person. So have you done that? Has that happened to you? Jesus has to be different in every way. John 1.1 tells us how different Jesus is. Look at John 1.1. We can't miss this first part, the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. In that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Once again, we see that Jesus has to be different. He has to be sent from God. Do you see how John is developing this narrative, this story? Do you see how he's building the argument? In fact, we get the argument that goes all the way to chapter 20, and he tells us the reason he wrote the Gospel of John was so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in so believing, have eternal life. That's the whole reason John wrote this, is that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the chosen one, the anointed one, the one sent from God. But it's more than just explaining the story, isn't it? He's not just telling us a, a, a Aesop's fables, a moralistic story. He's telling us who the Son of God is. That He is the one that is sent from God. John wants you to understand that Jesus is greater than anything that came before. Something that bamboozled John and Paul was why did the Jews reject their Messiah? That seems to be a theme that we see in the Gospel of John and in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John is why did the Jews who had the prophets, all the information they needed, their information was there available to them. They had the teachings every Saturday, every Sabbath. There was someone teaching them the law and the prophets, explaining to them the Scriptures. 
and they missed it. And we see that in the church today, don't we? We see people who come to church every single Sunday who put on their moral, moralistic clothing. They put on their clothes. They wear a suit and tie to church because they think that's what you must do. They wear the nicest clothes that they have, and they come to church because that's how they think they must be saved. But what's the reality? That's not how you're saved. You could be the greatest theologian of all time. You could study all the great writers of the past, the Calvins and the Augustines and the Thomas Aquinas's and the uh, everybody else in there, all the other ones, the Frames and the Karl Barths and the Burts and the everybody else. Okay, you could study all of them and have knowledge, but miss Christ. And that's what the Jews did. They missed Christ. And so John is trying to really drive it home here in our passage. Do not miss Christ. You could come to church for 70, 80 years and miss Christ. You could hear about Him every single Sunday. You could, you could read your Bible every day and miss Christ. That's the reality. So, I want you to ask yourself, do you see Christ as marvelous? Do you see Him and are you awed by the work and person of Jesus Christ? Are you in love with Him? I know I, that's a weird language to use, but do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? If you don't love Him, I really, really wonder if you have been born again. I know I'm really pounding this home because there are people sitting in this room that I don't know if you are saved. I'm going to tell you right now. There are people in this room that I don't know if you are saved. And I don't say that because I want to be mean. I don't want to be hurtful. But I want you to evaluate your heart. Check yourself. Do an investigation interrogate your heart. I don't know if we have intel people in the room, but do some interrogation. Knock the door off the side and do some waterboarding. Check your heart. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? Do you cherish Him? Is He your greatest treasure? When I share the gospel now, I don't say things like, do you know Jesus? I don't say things like, um, are you a Christian? Are you born again? Are you a Baptist? Are you this? Are you that? I don't say anything like that. Now I start asking the question, do you treasure Christ more than anything else? Because that's the question at hand. There are people in Africa and South America who are losing their lives, their jobs, their families because they treasure Christ more than anything else. The early Christians have no idea of what it would look like to be a, a Christian who only comes to church on Sunday and treasures everything else above Christ. They would, they would look at us and say, what is that? It's an abomination, and you are not saved if you don't treasure Christ above all. So I ask you this sincerely. Do you see Christ as marvelous, as beautiful, as joyful? Do you set your mind on Christ when you have nothing, nothing else to think about? Or, as uh, John put so, so well, are we distracted by all of our fears? Are we more concerned with this problem or that problem? Are our children pushing out our love for the Lord? If you don't know Jesus Christ in this way, it's really simple. Pray. Ask the Lord to send the Spirit into your life. Ask Him to give you new birth, to change your desires from the, the old loves and the old lusts, the old desires, and to, to love new things to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to seek after Christ. 
Begin to seek Him. And the way we seek Him is in prayer. Not through good works, not through effort, but through prayer. Because the Spirit is a Spirit. And we communicate to Him by prayer. The next thing, next fact you really need to know is that Jesus is God. This really stumbles up a lot of people. Jesus is God. There are groups out there that reject this reality and they try to call themselves Christians. Jesus is God. I mean, we just read several passages that show us that Jesus is God in the first part of John. But John is really bringing this home. Now remember, the Bible is not an encyclopedia or a systematic theology. It's not a, um, an FM that we can read whatever we want to figure out what needs to happen. The Bible is a compilation of information, not systematized. In fact, the majority is in poetry and story and narrative. And the reason for this is probably to make us seek Him more, more dearly, to hunt for Him, to search for Him, and to be transformed rather than just get information. Right? We've all known people who are really smart but really immature, don't we? We know a lot of people that have a lot of intellect but are not very wise but are very foolish. And we see that in our lieutenants. I'm just kidding. No, no offense to the officers in the room. No, we see that in the people who love wisdom but are always learning and they never get to the truth. And so what we see is that we have to understand from this passage that he is not telling us, okay, let me explain the Trinity to you. Paragraph 7 and 5 of this chapter tell you that this is the Trinity. No, what we see is we hear language. And let's look at the language that we see in verse 34. Verse 30, 34 says, For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. Right there we have a Trinitarian formula. There is a Trinity in that passage. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all mentioned here. Now, the language of the Trinity is not an easy doctrine, but we're going to try to hit it. There is only one God. That's what we know from the very beginning of Scripture. God is one. There is one God. You shall have no other gods before me. There is only one. I am the only one, says Jehovah. Right Over and over again, we see God saying there is one. Yet, at some times, we see the Spirit being referred to as God, and we see Jesus Christ being referred to as God. So how do we deal with it? Well, we know there's one God and three persons in this one God. They are co-equal and co-eternal. They have always existed. We see all three persons mentioned in our text. So at the end of 34, it says that Christ has the Spirit without measure. He has an infinite amount of the Spirit, an unlimited amount, an unstopped amount of the Spirit. He is full of the Spirit. Not full in the sense of a human being, because human beings cannot be full to the same extent that the Son of God can be full. And so we see that He has the Spirit. So there, as much as there is Spirit, it is in the Son. As the fullness of God dwells inside the Son of God. Right? We see that in other passages. I'm not going to get into it. Now look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So we see how it adds the Father loves the Son. So not only does the Son have the full Spirit of God in Him dwelling inside of Him, but the Father loves the Son in all the possible ways. Now this is hard truth to grasp, okay? I mean, maybe it is easy for you, but for me, this is a complicated topic. 
And if we mess it up, we can be very, uh, we can be prone to error. But it's important. So, God the Father loves the Son. The, the way that this verb is, is positioned, the way that this verb is um, in the Greek, shows an, an untimed uh, continuation. So there is no end to this love. It is an eternal love, and a love that never stops and never had a beginning. My, uh, my wife and I have been watching this show called Yellowstone. Now, I don't want to emphasize there's some bad stuff in there. You have to fast forward, so we keep the remote handy. But in Yellowstone, we're in season two. At the very end, the grandson gets kidnapped. The grandson's probably like eight or nine, and he gets kidnapped. The dad is like an ex-Navy SEAL guy, so that's always, it's always bad to kidnap someone's son. And then the grandpa is uh, like the owner of this big old fat ranch with lots of money. And, you know, he's like the head of the Cattlemen's Association. And they all have guns and bombs and explosives. And they're all going to. But, but this dad is like the grandfather says, I am willing to give up the ranch to get my son back. I'm willing to give up everything to get the grandson back. And, of course, the dad is like, I'm going to give up my life to get my grandson back from these kidnappers. And if you think about that, that's a human love. And think about it on an infinite scale. God the Father loves the Son from all eternity. In fact, if they are eternal beings, timeless beings, or persons, better use persons, God the Father loves the Son from all eternity. There has been a continual mutual love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a continual love among us, each other from all eternity. God is a relational being, and in order to be a relational being, he has to have more than one person. In some ways, we can understand this eternal, perfect love of God to the Son as personified by the Spirit. Some ways we can do that. Thomas, um, not Thomas, um, Augustine tried to explain this as God the Father having an infinite mind, all the thoughts of that mind, the Word in his mind, fully, completely all the way fleshed out from all eternity, is the Son. And the Son and the Father communicate in this way with the Holy Spirit being the result of that communication. So they have tried to, tried to go from a, a, um, a metaphysical understanding of what this means. So what does it mean that God the Father loves the Son from all eternity? What does it mean that there's only one God and there's these three persons? So... John 14, 16 through 17 says this. Uh, when they refer to the Holy Spirit, I, I want to emphasize this. The Holy Spirit is not a force, right? We all have watched Star Wars, and Star Wars has seeped into our theology, right? A lot of people think of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as the force or as a essence or as some kind of movement. The reality is the Holy Spirit is a person. Let's look at John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He, that's his preferred pronoun, he is the spirit of truth. He is. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. Do, but you do know him because he remains with you and I will be in you. Christ and the Holy Spirit remain in you. John 15, 26, when the counselor comes, the one I send to you, the one, hear that? The one I send to you from the Father, and then they say, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, 
he will testify about me. There's no doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, not a magical experience. Now, one way people have tried to describe this whole thing is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So how do we understand this reality? All right, first we need to recognize that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's not four, there's not two, there's three. Three actual persons. And we know that the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, according to John 17. Oh. John 17, 24 says, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. So we see this relationship language when talking about the Trinity. Now we cannot miss this truth. The Bible tells us there is only one God and three persons. Now, remember, our language is imprecise. We don't have good language. And I use this illustration. Okay, imagine this land that is all two-dimensional. It's all flat. Every creature on the planet is flat. I guess the world Earth would be flat too. Everybody's flat. Everything's flat. Flat, flat, flat. Okay. And then one of the flat squares sees a sphere. A sphere comes down and says, hey, I'm from Sphere World. And the flat guy then goes and tries to tell everybody else about a three-dimensional object, a sphere. How do you think he's going to describe that to the other people? They're probably going to lock him up in prison, right? Because it's, un, it's out of our world. It's, it's beyond our understanding. And so when we think about the Trinity, we've got to recognize that this is an otherworldly thing that we have a hard time getting our mind wrapped around. And so the early Christians tried to explain this. And they said that, that God is one substance or one essence, but three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get this great creed. It's called the Nicene Creed. You have a, a short copy of some of the words from it in your bulletin. But I want to read what Christians in about 325 A.D. wrote about God because they tried to explain it, because they had people coming around denying the Trinity. And so they wanted to explain the Trinity with our finite words. And this is what they said. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, that's the language we use, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceeds. See, that's the language we use. Begotten, the, the, the Son is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Who, with the Father and the Son together, is worshipped and glorified, who spoke to the prophets, or by the prophets. And I believe in one holy church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that's how the early Christians tried to explain this language of the Trinity. And it came out of a war, right? There was a battle going on between the understanding of the Trinity. And so when something negative happens, we try to come up with a positive explanation of why this happens. And so for those of us who are simple, let's just try to do this. God the Father, God Himself, the Godhead is one essence, one substance. And there are three distinct persons in that one essence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? That's the simple way of understanding it. The Son is begotten of the Father, not made, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now we as Christians have been confessing this for close to 1,800 years. We have been saying this creed in our churches, We've been saying, repeating them because we are attempting to take the biblical data and use it in order to be able to say what we believe. Um, that's why we have systematic theology, in order to try to understand systematically why we do the things we do. If you ever looked at like something called a battle drill in the military, in the military infantry dudes, they have these things called battle drills. And that is a series of steps of actions that you take based on the circumstances. And it's a response to a close ambush or a far ambush. And so we have certain things we have to do. So in a close ambush, what we do is we turn into the enemy and we run at them. That's the job. That's the practice. But if it's a far ambush, you sit in place and you return fire and your other team maneuvers and hits them. Okay? So you have these teams to move and, and execute. But you practice it all the time. So the battle drill is born out of a circumstance. And that's what the Nicene Creed did. There were some people who said that Jesus is not God. And so they said, no, 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 he is God. Let us show you. Here's our creed. This is what this means. And then, you know, you get the picture. I'm not going to go into church history on this. But I think you understand it's a response to um, some heresies is what we call it. And so here's the deal. There are no new heresies only new heretics, right? If we don't understand history, these same old heresies pop back up. And these heresies show up in things like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These heresies show up in uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? So we see the same heresies coming up again and again. And that's what the creed was meant to protect against. Hey, I got one more point, one more fact that you have to know. And so I have to go fast. So Jesus is telling us that, uh, John is telling us that Jesus is God from all eternity, which means that we must worship Jesus as God. We must exclaim, like doubting Thomas, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he said this. He said, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, the doubter, saw Jesus Christ, felt the hands, and he said, that's God. That is God. He saw God. So remember the purpose of John, that we must understand Jesus and believe him for our eternal life. Now this is exciting because we are born again, we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can see this with 
our eyes. So let's summarize what we know so far. Jesus is sent by God. Jesus is God in human flesh, filled with the Spirit of God. We are called to receive and trust in Him alone for our salvation because Jesus is God. If God is going to send His only begotten Son for us, why would He let us come any other way? Oh, don't worry about that sacrifice my son did. Just take the other road. Let's be realistic. There's no other way. To be saved, you must place your trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Not in your own good deeds, not in your own abilities. Now, I want you to think about this. The nicest, goodest, that's not a good word, nicest, goodest person in the world will still go to hell without Christ. The goodest person in the world will still go to hell without Christ. This is a reality. And if you do not know Christ, if He is not your one trust, your one salvation, you are going to hell. I don't care how long you've been in this church. I don't care if you are the head of the elders. I don't care if you're the pastor. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. That is the reality. Okay, I, I, I don't know any other way to say it that's softer or gentler. I don't think there is a softer way. All right, and I love you enough to tell you to your face, if you do not know Jesus Christ, your future is grim. You will be dying forever. Some of you are in your later days and you feel old and you feel like you are dying. That's what you're going to feel like for the rest of eternity if you do not know Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to show you reality. A continual dying without ever being dead. <clears throat> Remember Nicodemus head of the, the Sanhedrin, or a, a big guy in the, in the Jewish court, had all the right things. He knew all the law. He knew all the prophets. He knew the, knew the word very well. He spoke Hebrew better than all of us, right? Because he was Hebrew, right? He knew Hebrew, and he knew what the Bible said, yet he was missing it. And Jesus looked him in the face and says, you, teacher of Israel, will not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You must be born again. So we see that Jesus rules as God Verse 31, 32, 34, and 35 all point to Jesus as the ruler. So if Jesus is sent by God and God and is God, then he must have the authority of God. Not only that, Jesus is fulfilling a specific role as directed by God, that of a particular promised prophet. I'm going to say that five times fast. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22 says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. Have we read that before? Yep, we read it in John. And he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he may be completely cut off. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You ever hear any uh, modern day prophets claim infallibility. If they are wrong, we're told to stone them in the Old Testament. Now we just don't have to listen to them. So if there's ever been someone who raises up and says, I'm a prophet, and says, oh, I'm supposed to marry you, and then they don't marry you, they're wrong. Don't listen to them. They're probably crazy. Okay. When the prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews was to their great detriment, as Acts 3.23 tells us. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet 
will be completely cut off from the people. If we do not listen to Jesus Christ, we will be cut off. If you do not obey, if you do not listen and obey the word of the Lord through Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. That's the reality. That's what 1 John tells us. Okay. We have more than just a prophetic authority. Jesus rules. Look at 32 and 34. 32 says, He testifies to what He has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts His testimony. 34, For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since He gives the Spirit without measure. God also, Jesus Christ also sends the Spirit. It proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. Remember the power of God in His Word, His spoken Word. How did creation come about? God spoke it into existence. So the word of power comes from God's word. And what is the word? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. John 1.1. 1, 1. He rules. John says that Jesus is above all, which means he has authority over all. All things are in his hands in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. That means he has all authority on heaven and earth, as Matthew 28 tells us. So Jesus is God, full of God, and rules as God, which, must, which means we have to respond. There's a response that's required of us. And John does this by exhorting us with a decision, a message to a decision. And so verse 36 really brings this out. There is a diverting or diverging decision. There's one or two ways. The result of this lifting up of Jesus is that there are two paths and two destinations. You can die with the snake bite, or you can look at the bronze serpent lifted up. Which one are you going to choose? Which one are you going to look? You know, John and Paul struggle with this, with the Jews ignoring who the Messiah is. John verse 36 seems to expand on this thought. He points out the diverging eternal destinies. Here's the reality, friends. I'm almost done. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Yet the one who rejects or rebels, and this word is tricky, uh, right here, this word for rejects in verse 36, says the one who believes in the Son is eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son, or disobeys the Son, or better yet, rebels against the Son, which is the same language used of the Israelites when they rejected God and turned to other idols. This language here says that the one who disobeys will not see eternal life. 1 John 5, 1 through 4 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. Do you love God? That's what 1 John is saying. This is how we know that we love God when we love God and obey His commands. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is. Listen to this. If you love God, if you love Christ, you want to keep His command, and His commands are not a burden. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to do the things that you're supposed to do? It's a burden. I use this illustration a lot, um, mainly with teenagers. Imagine that you have your mom tells you to clean your room. And let's say it's a teenage girl. Mom says, go clean your room. And the girl's like, oh, okay, fine, and goes and does it. It's a burden. It's a task. It's a, a chore. But what happens when that boy she likes is supposed to come over? 
man, that room is spick and span, cleaned up, looking ready to go because she wants to show off. It's not a burden because she has a lesser or greater love for what she, she wants. And so it says, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Trust. It comes down to trust. Remember I talked about faith. There's three things when you think about the word faith. There's knowledge, there is assent, and then there is trust. Right? We know the demons believe, but they're going to perish. So we have knowledge, so there's some intellectual knowledge there. We believe that it's true, that Jesus is the Christ, but then we trust in him to be the Christ. And this is a daily task that we have to do, friends. This is something that we have to wake up every morning and daily take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. There's a continual turning away from our sin and a turning towards Jesus Christ. Our obedience to Christ comes from our faith and trust in Him. If you are born of God, you will love and obey. Obedience does not bring us to faith, but obedience is a result of faith. Does that make sense? Are we getting that? If you're confused about that, let's talk. So the question that I have for us today is, do you love God? Do you love Jesus Christ? Is He your treasure? If He is not, then you are chasing after a false treasure, a false hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, I ask that this information that we have learned today would not just sit on the, on the surface, but would go deep, deep into our hearts, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who does not know you truly, has not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, I pray that you would make yourself known to them, that you would open the floodgates of their heart, that they would be transformed by the renewing of their souls, that they would become born again, that they would seek after you, they would have new life, new desires, new hopes, new changes in their life. Lord, And I pray that those of us who are Christians, who believe in you, who trust in you, who love you, with all of our heart, will not rest when we have friends who do not know you, that we would be concerned about their salvation, that we would pray for them. Lord, I pray for a work of the Spirit in our hearts today, that the life of God and the soul of man would become a reality in each and every person in this room, that we would be transformed by the gospel. Father, we ask that you would keep us this week, that you would guide us this week, that we would uh, show the fruit of the Spirit in our interactions with one another, that we would love, that we would have joy, that we would have peace, that we would have patience, that we would be kind, that we would be faithful, that we would be good, that we would be just, that we would be gentle, and that we would have self-control. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.